excited to be a part of the PCA? I hope so. Uh, and let me just tell you, it's not easy work sometimes. You know, I, I, I love to go to Presbytery. Some people think I'm crazy. There's a couple, couple of people in this room that think I'm absolutely crazy because I like to go to Presbyterian, to General Assembly. Uh, but I love it for a lot of reasons, and one of those it is you need to understand something. I'm not a member of Springs Presbyterian Church. I'm a member of the, of the Central Florida Presbytery. That's where my membership is. So technically speaking, even though I am part of the, the, the you know, we are brothers and sisters and all that, you know, and I'm very close to, I'm closer to most people in here than I am to most of the people that are in my church, the Central Florida Presbytery. It's just the way we have, have things set up, but... Uh, there's lots of really great things going in uh, on in our denomination. I don't know if you heard this or not, but a couple of uh, really very uh, important men, pastors in our denomination, passed away uh, over the last few days. Tim Keller finally gave in to pancreatic cancer, which he's been fighting for uh, a great many years. Also, Harry Reeder, who was off. Uh, probably one of the founding fathers of the PCA and uh, very well known in our denomination. He also passed too, so, you know, the hope and prayers that we'll have people step forward and fill the shoes, big shoes that those, those men have, have left. And just continue to pray for them and uh, for their families. Uh, okay, so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to jump into... Acts chapter 27, if you're familiar with Acts, you know that we only have just a ch couple of chapters left, uh, left to go. And we're going to be reading uh, 44 verses here, so it's going to take me a little while. <laughs> and just remember that this is, this is still, this is the fifth time that Paul has appeared before bodies and given a defense for his faith. And, and indicating and showing that really he, there's nothing that he's guilty of that he's been charged with and this, that, and the other. And, and every person that he sat before, all of the judges, kings, and et cetera, that he's, he's witnessed to basically come to the same conclusion, that he's done nothing wrong, certainly nothing worthy of being executed for, but it was just simply the pressure of the Jewish Levitical community bearing down upon them that just continued to push the issue. So much so now that Paul is going to be transported to, to Rome because he actually made an appeal to Caesar himself. So anyway, verse, uh, verse 1 in chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Let me just look at something. Don't you hate it when you get old and you can't feel the pages so you can separate them? <laughs> anyway, let me just read on. So I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews, therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life, this is not right. <laughs> we are actually in 
chapter 27. <laughs> I don't know why I wrote 23 in my book. Uh, but anyway, 27. Anyway, what did Paul stand in judgment uh, before the Roman governor, uh, Felix first and then Festus. And now he is getting ready to be sent to Rome. And was decided that we should sail for Italy to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarking in a ship of Andromitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be uh, be cared for and putting out the sea from there we sailed under the the lee of cyprus because the winds were against us and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of cilicia and pamphylia we came to mira in lycia uh, there the centurion found a ship of alexandria sailing for italy and put us on board we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off nidus and as the wind did not allow us to go further, uh, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome, uh, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even uh, the fast was already over, Paul advised him, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, and because their harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out the sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spending the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. They managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard, and with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you, shall, uh, have listen, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete incurred this injury and loss yet now i urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the ship for this very night there stood before me an angel of the god to whom i belong and whom i worship and he said do not be afraid paul you must stand before caesar and behold god has granted you all those who sail with you so take heart men for i have faith in god that it will be exactly as i have been told but me must must run aground on some island. 
when the 14th night had come, we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight. The sailors suspected that they, we were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship uh, and had lowered the ship's uh, boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, uh, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food for, that will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it. And, uh, and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food. We were in all 276 persons uh, in the ship, and when they had had enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And now when it was day, they did not recognize land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to say Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the, the land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Quite a story. I don't know about you, but I enjoy an adventure on occasion. I've had a few of my own over the years. Probably nothing like this, nothing that comes close to this. I just want to remind us again, you've heard me say this a number of times, and I think this is important for us to understand the, you know, the gist of everything that's going on here, is there's a goal in mind that Paul has in mind. And his, and his, uh, his goal is to give testimony in Rome. You know, Jesus had appeared to him before all the trials and tribulations he finds himself in now, and he told him that he, in fact, would go to Rome and he would testify in regard to him in Rome. And so Paul has had it in his mind all through these trials that he's been uh, subjected to over and over again. Knowing that, not, not the details, not knowing how it was going to happen, but knowing that eventually Jesus was going to bring him to Rome and there he would preach the gospel to the Romans. I would imagine that, uh, you know, where Paul is now, I don't, if, if you've, have you ever been out on a boat in a very uh, rough water? <laughs> I've had a few occasions, uh, you know, to have things like that. Riley and I, and, and, and Riley and I, and, and my brother-in-law Bill will never forget the day that we, we went out in his 26-foot boat 
and there was a cold front coming in, and we knew it was going to probably get rough after a while, but it got really, really rough, and we, we were in this boat, and these waves were cresting way over our head, and, and we knew that if just one of those waves came into the boat, it would fill it up and probably put us on the bottom. <laughs> So it's one of those things, and it took, us, it took us like six hours to go what usually took us an, maybe an hour or, or something like that uh, and whatever. And I'm sure all of us at that point were praying to God to save us and, and, and making promises to him that we would never do anything so stupid again in our whole lifetime. Uh, but the sea is hard sometimes. You know, people have been sailing across the oceans for a very long time, but there has been great destruction upon vessels and people. How many people have drowned because ships have sunk in the open sea time and time again? I would imagine every one of those men, as they're going through this terrible situation, had think had thoughts of God. Probably a lot of very wrong thoughts. But it's not uncommon in situations like this, and it's very common on battlefields for people to consider their circumstances and make an appeal to a God whether they really understand or believe that God is even there or not. And very often when they do that, they make promises to God. If you will save me, then I will. Or if you will save me, then I won't. I doubt if there's anyone in this room that has never had a thought like that. It's the way of people, not just Christians. It's the way of everybody because fundamentally everyone knows that there's a God. And so what I'm telling you is even unbelievers, when it comes right down into the, the time of their death, I would imagine the majority of them are trying to work out a deal with a God that they have pronounced not to exist up to that point. There's something about being confronted with death, in particular our own death, that will bring every one of us to our knees. And it's possible that there were deals that these that men made with God that night that they actually followed through with. That we know that's not the typical thing. That in the middle of an emergency we make those deals. But it usually doesn't take very long before we begin to drift away. What does Jesus say about such things? He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black.
one of the reasons they are taking the sea is because to they can he could get to Rome basically by land. That in those days it would literally have taken months. Uh, sailing was typically the quickest way to get to a lot of the places that you were going to, even though it was very hazardous. Now, we most of us have been on cruises and things like that on these big ships and, and etc. And we understand that they are designed today in such a way that it would take a whole lot to sink one of them. But we need to understand that the ships that these people were sailing on, you and I probably would have classified as boats, not even ships to begin with. They were not big enough to be considered ships. But they sank on a regular basis. The first day they sailed up the coast from Caesarea to Sidon, which was an old Phoenician city, about 100 miles. So they, they, they sailed 100 miles in one day. That would be quite a bit of distance in those days, I would imagine. From there on to Cyprus. Remember, Paul had been there before. That was the homeland of Barnabas, and they went there on their first missionary journey. And what typically would you would see ships do in those days is that they would island hop their way across or through the Mediterranean. In other words, they didn't take necessarily the most direct water route. Because they knew as long as they stayed close to land, then they had a place of escape if things got really bad. So I would imagine most of the voyages were not kind of a straight line. They were very, very zigzaggy. <laughs> kind of hop, skipping, and jumping from one place to another. There's a sense in which they're using the Cyprus coast, the island of Cyprus, to protect them from the ravages of the sea. Eventually, they come to an island called Crete, which is a Greek island, which is an island that I spent almost a month on years ago. Talk about beautiful. Talk about a place worth going to. I stayed in a little village called uh, Arhanes, which is right down the road, just within just a few miles of Knossos, which you probably heard something of, the city of the ancient Greeks. Very cool place. When I was there, I took a day trip down to a place called Matala, which is right on the coast. In other words, I was standing on the coast looking out on the sea that Paul sailed through on his way to Rome. Of course, in those days, I didn't even know anything about the Apostle Paul, and I didn't know anything about this voyage that he took to Rome. But it's just, you know, and I've shared this with you as we were talking about Rome earlier and, and Athens as well, and that is it's just really neat to be able to say, I've been there.
R.C. Sproul writes about this. He says, in the middle of October, ships stopped sailing in the Mediterranean. During November, December, and January, the waters were so treacherous that to sail them was to risk one's own life. It just goes to show you how important the Romans and uh, other people believed that this whole business with Paul was. That they're willing to risk lives simply, at least in part, to get Paul to Rome. When I was in Europe, I also sailed uh, on a ship between Athens and Greece or between uh, Greece and uh, Brindisi, Italy, just a few hundred miles north of the, of the route that Paul and these others are on at this point. I don't remember all that much about it, but I do remember this one thing, and that is that the wind blew unrelentingly, no breaks, and it was a stiff, brisk wind. Very rough seas. And across that, in the size boat that these guys were in, is an amazing feat of courage or stupidity, one or the other. They do everything, that they, the crew does everything they've been taught to do to help prevent a shipwreck. Verse 29 says this, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for a day to come. Who was it was praying? doesn't say specifically, but it's, it basically means this, that the people who let down the anchor were praying. So it wasn't Paul and the other guys. It was the Roman soldiers or sailors. Now, if you know anything about the Greek... You might know this, and that is that this particular word that is translated here as pray typically is translated as wished or hoped. In other words, they were really not praying in the, in the, in the sense that we think of it. They were wishing and they were hoping that some, that some intercession would take place and save them from destruction. You've heard the expression, there are no atheists in foxholes. I don't think there are any atheists on sinking ships either. That in crisis, people turn to God. Whether they know him or not. For most people, it's one of those just-in-case-he-might-be-real things. Because very often after people go through a crisis like this and they prayed to God to save them, you know, and made promises to God, and he does save them, then nothing really comes from it on their part. Happens all the time. People will say anything in crisis. Things got so bad, the sailors were seeking to escape the ship and what they were going to do, who knows. 
But God has enlightened Paul to the fact that these men have to stay on the ship. Otherwise, everyone's going to be lost. And so the Roman centurions make it so. I don't know about you, but if I had been Paul, I might have been thinking something like, you know what? There ought to be some way in the middle of this crisis, of this confusion, that I might be able to escape. We know that Paul was falsely accused. We know that Paul has stood before five different bodies already, and they've all found him guilty, but not, nothing that was worthy of him being executed or that they were able to execute him for. Even they all would have loved to have done that. That Paul has compassion on his captors. Paul is trusting in God through all of it. Not Roman soldiers, not sinking ships, not sailors, not the weather. He's trusting in God to be true to his words, that he will testify of the gospel in Rome. Paul says this, he said to those around him, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Behold, you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. The ship had traveled around a thousand miles since they left Crete. And suddenly it strikes a reef and is run aground. And the stern begins to break up because of the waves pounding on it. And still they all made it to land safely they've come a long way one of the things most amazing things about this particular story that grabs my attention is the calmness of the Apostle Paul He's not frantic. He's not fearful. He is a solid rock upon which everyone else on the boat begins to rest. 
He's a calming effect in the middle of a very great crisis. You have to wonder what this experience, how it affected the men that went through it. Did some of them become believers? I would imagine quite likely or quite possibly some of them actually did because they saw in Paul something they had never seen in anyone else in their whole lifetime. An unbelievable faith. A faith that he was willing to stake everything, even his life on. Thus far, the Lord has protected Paul from death, but a day will come in the not-so-distant future when his head will be separated from his body. Can you imagine being beheaded? To me, it's like one of the most horrible ways that you can conceive of dying. Because your brain does not die immediately. You understand that. Only after lack of oxygen that you pass out. Paul writes in, in 2 Timothy 4 16 and 17 At my first offense, no one came to stand beside me, but all deserted me. Can you imagine? No one. Paul left to himself. Completely. And this is while he's in the Roman captivity. But that's not all he writes. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. From Rome, Paul will write some of the most precious verses that we read in Scripture. He will write, To live is Christ, to die is gain. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. He will write, Rejoice in the Lord always again. I say rejoice. He will write, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He will write, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. You see, for Paul, all of life was ministry in one form of another. He was consumed with Christ and the advancement of the gospel and the betterment of the church of Jesus Christ. It's very unlikely that anyone in this room will ever find themselves in the predicament that Paul is in. I mean, things could change. I mean, this country is definitely changing at this point, and for years and years and years and years, our right to practice our religion without any hindrance from the government has been completely open. 
that we understand that there are people today in uh, very active in higher up places that would love to restrict our, our ability to worship God in the manner that we feel drawn to do. In other words, the circumstances that we find ourselves in now could change drastically very quickly. We could be sitting here three, you know, three weeks from now going, I can't believe all the stuff that's happened in this country, and, and we're beginning to feel the pressure of uh, bearing down on the church of Jesus Christ. We don't know what comes around the corner. Often we can't even see the corner itself. Our life could literally be turned on its head today. We could be laying in bed tonight wondering what in the world happened. You know, I woke up this morning and this, this is what my life was and what is it and look at it now. We all find ourselves sometimes in difficult circumstances. How do we react to them? How we react to them says a lot about who we are and where we are. These men, other than Paul, were in an absolute panic. The thing about it is, is in Christ we have that solid rock to stand on. And regardless of what happens in our life, we know some things. And one of those is God is not going to ban us. Jesus is not going to leave us. In certain circumstances, I would imagine, and I, I can't think of anything that would do that, there might be something that might cause me to abandon even Lori. I would hope that God would strike me dead before anything like that ever happened. But we all have a big problem, and that is sin, besetting sin, sin that we continue to commit. And we all have a witness to all those people around us. And let me tell you, you may not realize that people are watching and they're listening to what you have to say. How you react to circumstances. What you have to say about this, that, or the other. We will all have storms in life. That's true for every single one of us. They will do one or two things. They will either drive us away from God or they will drive us closer to Him. You know what I'm talking about. Your life is not worry-free. Your life is not absolutely hunky-dory all the time. But you know what? Very often we believe it depends upon us. Paul got his strength in knowing something 
Could he change the circumstances he was in? Did he have any control over the wind, or over the sea, over the men around him? No. That he knew that his God, his Father in heaven, had absolute control over everything. That he was, in fact, where he was under the conditions that he found himself in because God had willed it to be true in absolute detail. We will have storms in life. And the question is this, will they drive us away from God or will they drive us closer to him? I'm sure that Paul was thinking about a lot of things, but maybe this verse came into his mind over these days at sea. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The words of Jesus, John 16, 33. God loves you, and he loves me. As hard as life may be at times, that never changes. It never alters. It never falters. Every single thing that we experience in life has a purpose has a design and that design is to drive us closer and closer to our God and Father that is whether it is seemingly good or bad from our perspective God will not ever abandon his children ever take it to the bank.